Hello and welcome to this episode of The Line to Mastery. In this episode, we are joined by a very special guest, Chelsea McLaughlin. Chelsea is a nurse with a passion for functional medicine. She's also a slackliner, amazing dog mom, and just an overall incredible, well-rounded human being. And in this episode, we go deep on how to regulate your nervous system. We drop in about functional medicine, learning to support your system holistically, and we riff on universal source consciousness. All in all, this was one of the most expansive, valuable, flowy podcasts that I've had so far. This conversation just naturally offered so much magic and gold. Chelsea fucking showed up. Um, yeah, you can tell that she is just such, such a smart human being, really well-versed in medicine and health. She listens to a lot of podcasts and yeah, it was about time she dropped in for her first one. She also shares in this podcast her journey with the slack line, the beginning of her relationship with Jacob and her transition into van life. I am so honored to share this podcast with you all. And without further ado, here is the podcast with Chelsea McLaughlin. So real quick, is the van Nirvana or is it Nirvana in transit? The van, I would say, is Nirvana, and then our Instagram is Nirvana in Transit. Okay. So it's kind of like the name of the van is Nirvana in Motion in Transit. Yeah, that was something that as I was working on the podcast with Jacob and, like, fixing up the intro, well, just putting it together, I wasn't clear, and I was just like, ah, let's just go with Nirvana. I think that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Sweet. I got it. (laughs) Well, um, what's your name? Full name. So my name is Chelsea McLaughlin, formerly Kilgore. (laughs) So now Kilgore is my middle name. Oh, cool. Did you have another middle name before that? Yes, Nicole, which I like that middle name. Um, It's the name my parents chose for me. However, I felt like I identified more with Kilgore. So on legal paperwork, I decided just to drop Nicole and make my maiden name my middle name. Wow, that's fascinating. That's so cool. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. Because you're you're taking elements of what has been given to you and transforming it into your own perspective of what feels right. Definitely. Yeah. There was, uh, to be honest, a little bit of resistance in changing my last name. Because it's something that's expected of women is just to take the husband's name. And on one hand, I do like the idea of being united in one name. And someday when we have kids, I like the idea of having one family name. Um, but there's a little bit of a apprehension to want to just give up my last name, where I come from, um, and it's just expected that the woman does that. <laughs> so part of me, I would I would joke every now and then and tell Jacob that he should just change his last name to mine. <laughs> yeah, just become Jacob Kilgore. Yeah. <laughs> How did he feel about that? 
well, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, here we are. <laughs> I don't think he was down with it, no. So yeah, that's what I chose to do, is keep Kilgore, because it feels like a big part of me, and um, also change my name to unite with him as a family. Yeah, I, I really like the way you ended up constructing that for yourself. Thanks. Yeah. So people are probably familiar with that name, since he was recently on the podcast? McLaughlin? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so so that was something that was really cool. Um was having Jacob on the podcast and then at the end of the podcast realizing that what made the most sense was to drop into a podcast with you next. <laughs> <laughs> and, and here we are, which is, yeah, it's just so cool because the two of you are some of the smartest young adults that I know. Oh, well, compliments. It, yeah. Yeah. And to just like hit Jacob and then have you both on it being both of your first podcasts, but you both listen to a lot of podcasts mm-hmm. anyways. Yeah. It just makes a little bit more than him probably. Cause I drive a lot. So have a lot of time to do that. Yeah. So what has been your experience with podcasts? Mostly to learn more. Um, I love listening to things about health and wellness. Um, so through podcasts is actually how I learned and discovered what functional medicine is. And I was talking to you about that earlier, like Chris Kresser and uh, Dr. Mark Hyman. Um, and then there's a few podcasts that will have really amazing medical guests on their show. So I've discovered a lot of them and that whole world of like holistic health kind of through podcasts. So that's what really engages me. I don't listen to very many like stories or fiction. I like to learn new ways to improve my lifestyle. Um, and just a different way to kind of like look at health, um, compared to what I knew it to be prior, um, with my traditional background, um, as a nurse. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like that would be so crucial in regards to opening up your mind and just having a greater scope of what medicine is, because it seems like here in the West, the education around medicine is very limiting and like the body and the understanding of the mind is very limiting. Whereas it just doesn't paint the whole picture of what's happening. Right. Yeah. There was, there was more, um, I knew there was more kind of behind the curtain, I guess. And I felt like the world of podcasts exposed me to it. Um, so I mean, I love listening to Joe Rogan because he's funny. I mean, everyone, I think who listens to podcasts has listened to at least one of his (laughs) or more, but, um, I particularly like the, um, episodes where he has, a really interesting scientist or a doctor or some sort of expert in that space. And he can just have an open forum, three hour conversation with them. And I feel like I've learned so much through that about myself and what else is out there. And that actually led me to working in functional medicine for a couple of years. 
after working in the hospital, which was complete night and day. <laughs> so for those who are listening that might not know, what exactly is functional medicine? So functional medicine, from my perspective, would be a more holistic approach to health. Um, we're still They're still looking at objective clinical data from blood work and stool tests and other panels like that. Um, also taking into consideration lifestyle and epigenetics. So um, I feel as if functional medicine just takes health to another level. So rather than just looking at it from a treatment perspective, um, it's the whole picture. So what is someone presents with symptoms and we're not just looking at what those symptoms are. Um, we're trying to figure out the root cause where mm -hmm. those symptoms come from. And so the treatments wouldn't look like just a medication. They might include medications. Um, but we're first going to try things to assist the body in healing itself. So that would look like diet changes, improving sleep, stress levels, movement. Um, so a really holistic approach to health. And sometimes it also couples with um, pharmaceutical medications, but that's usually not the first treatment or the only treatment. So there's a big emphasis on uh, eating well and supplementation and really supporting your body to live optimally. Would looking at past traumas and releasing stuck emotions be an aspect of functional medicine? Yes. I worked under a doctor who had her own practice, and at least in my experience there, looking at stress and mental health and um, your ability to regulate your nervous system was a huge picture um, or a huge part of the whole picture. So that was something that we addressed in pretty much every single patient visit. Um, you can be doing everything as far as diet and exercise and sleep, but if your mind is in a really bad place all the time, it can cause you to be sick, even if you're doing everything physically, quote unquote, right. So uh, addressing mental health, which includes past traumas, um, was a really big part of the practice. And I think functional medicine in general. So meditation is a really big topic of discussion with our patients. And in most of the functional medicine doctors I follow, I feel like I've seen meditation as part of almost every single like kind of treatment protocol. It's necessary. It's so necessary. Absolutely. To tune in. So like the oxygen that we take in is life. And if you're just constantly doing that unconsciously, you're not going to be sustaining yourself or oxygenating yourself, oxygenating yourself as fully as you could if you were present with it. Mm -hmm. And it's not something that we're taught. I mean, like there's kids nowadays that have the opportunity to go to um, these different types of schools that actually teach meditation. But I wasn't taught meditation when I was growing up. No. Uh, I had to teach my mom meditation. My dad doesn't meditate. So, so yeah, just having access to these tools, especially here in the West, that 
have always been around, but we haven't had access to them right. and we haven't really been taught. It just shows that there are a lot of changes happening. Absolutely. You hear about it in the, the mainstream. System. Yeah. Now. And I'm definitely not the best at it either. It's a practice. An ebbing and flowing <laughs> practice for sure. Yeah. Um, but I recognize all of the benefits of it and not just meditation, but other ways in which to regulate your nervous system and to observe your thoughts and, um, your triggers and things that have happened in the past that affect today. Yeah, because it really can make the difference between you watching an emotion move over you or a thought or an idea move over you like a cloud and just honoring like, oh, this is just something that I get to witness and I don't have to react to or you grabbing on to that idea that emotion and then running with it and potentially yeah. hurting someone else in the process because you got wrapped up in this story that mm. may not actually be reality or right. the full picture of, of what happened. And even just being able to tap into the breath becomes a superpower. Absolutely. And there's so many different styles of meditation, so many different styles of breath work. Mm -hmm. Like there's somewhere if you have a difficult time sleeping, like you can just drop yourself into a, lower, um, brainwave and, uh -huh. and sleep better. If you want to like reprogram your subconscious, like there's meditations for that. If you want to, um, tap into breath work and like really oxygenate your cells mm -hmm. and fill them with life. Like that's something that you can do too. There's ones that help you regulate your nervous system and go right. from like a sympathetic state to a parasympathetic state. And it's all just based off of the way you breathe. Yeah, it's so cool. It's so cool. Yeah. I really love the connection between the physical and the psyche. Um, how you can regulate your breath pattern and that actually changes your nervous system. And yeah, to just expand on what you're saying about sympathetic versus parasympathetic, you may already know this, but... Um, I feel like at least me and a lot of people in our present society are on overdrive a lot. So it takes more of a practice to drop into the parasympathetic. So long, slow exhales are how to access that versus um, inspiration. Inhale is more of a uh, sympathetic. So if you want to drop more into the parasympathetic, take just like a normal deep breath in but then work on taking a slow, steady breath out. Um, and that, and, you know, multiple times in and out, focusing on a long, slow exhale is, I believe, one of the best ways to drop into that state. Yeah. Yeah, it's so good. I think um, it was like this study done in Japan around just six deep breaths are required to completely change your state to go wow. into a different state within your nervous system. And I played around with like six, like inhale 
to a cadence of six, mm-hmm. hold for a cadence between two and six, mm-hmm. exhale for a cadence of six. But I mean, like, if you're really trying to get your parasympathetic, you could just go for a cadence of eight. Yeah. And then hold for another cadence of two to six and then repeat that five more times. Nice. And, and that's something that not only in state change, so going from like sympathetic to parasympathetic, but going in space change. So like, let's say, um, you went to work and you had a stressful day at work, like either getting back to your car and before you even drive home or drive or like get into the house and see Jacob, like just taking that time to yourself Mm -hmm. to take those breaths and change your state so that that way it's not like you're bringing everything Mm -hmm. from work into your house with you. Sounds like a good recommendation. (laughs) It's, It's a practice for all of us. Yeah. And it's something that, I've been playing with for a few months, not every single time, but mm-hmm. like when I'm aware of it, it's like, Oh yeah, of course, this is something that I can do. I like that. Yeah. It takes all of like two minutes. Yeah. Um, I feel like it's really easy for me. I'm my current job. I'm seeing people out in the field and then I just come right home when I'm done. And so even like I've, it's hard for me sometimes just to kind of release that I'm showing up at home and I'm walking in. Like I have to, you know, be somewhere cause I've been doing that most of the day. Um, and it is easy if I've been just kind of stressed and in traffic, it's easy to bring some of that, f- the feeling of stress into the home. Um, and then potentially, you know, take it out in my behavior with Jacob. Cause you know, it's always easiest to, uh, lash out or be negative in front of the person you're the people you're closest with. Um, so I actually love that idea of like <laughs> sitting in the car for six breaths. Cause really six breaths is one minute. That's not a long time. If you're taking slow deep breaths and then going in and having that reset. Yeah. And like, not only does that help your connection with Jacob, but it also connects helps with your connection with yourself. Uh-huh. too because you're taking that pause for like, oh foremost. this is how i take care of me and then from the relationship that i have with myself that ripples out into every single other relationship mm-hmm. yeah absolutely i notice a big difference when i take the time to restore myself before going about my day um which has been more of an active, um, effort recently. The past few months is like first thing in the morning rather than scrolling to get up and roll out my yoga mat and sit on it and breathe or move or just like lay there and cuddle my puppies (laughs) and pet them. And my day is so much better doing that versus when I don't. Yeah. It's integral. I I used to have the same problem. Like I would start my day for years with my phone. And what that does is it just like exposes your brain when it's in such a fertile state from going from sleeping, sleeping to, to waking. I can't remember the exact brain states, um, at this moment in time. Anyways, though, like going from this fertile state to being exposed by all the information in the world, all of the dopamine that comes in, 
it sets the tone for the way your brain um, maneuvers throughout the rest of your day mm-hmm. to be in a very reactive state because we're getting all of these hits of instant gratification by checking the phone to start the day. And then it's almost like you're, you're seeking things constantly. It's the same with like sugar, yeah. you know, like if you start your day with like a really high sugary breakfast, then throughout the rest of your day, like you're going to have these highs and then these crashes and you have to keep eating sugar in order to feel somewhat normal. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see the similarity. Yeah, I feel like scrolling in the morning is... I'm taking on everyone's energy before I my brain has had a chance to even decide what my own energy is for that day. And that's been kind of like this recent epiphany that's like so obvious. <laughs> but I'm like, oh, that is really what's happening. Um, and especially throughout, you know the pandemic with so many um, crazy and negative and up and down things in our world. um, I was noticing that starting my day with absorbing all of that energy from social media was having a pretty negative impact on like my mental outlook throughout the day. And so, um, yeah, it was like just this almost epiphany. Maybe I read it somewhere, probably heard it on a podcast. (laughs) Um, just, you know, before you take in everyone else's energy, you need to set the tone for your own. And that's, yeah, it's been really important and big. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the morning routine allows you to tune yourself, align yourself to who you want to be throughout the day. And then the more you get into that pattern and that routine of tuning yourself to who you want to be throughout your day, it ripples out into the rest of your life. You know, because your life is just the accumulation of many moments in many days. And every single day that you have is simply a today. Right. Yeah, there are some choices in the day when we see some. Yeah. Yeah. And I think not all the time. There are, of course, external circumstances that we cannot change. And I think it is important to be able to feel our emotions and, you know, let them carry through. But at the same time, to some degree, our happiness and state of mind, we do have, we do have some choice in it. Um, and I think it's important for me not to let my actions just like ride the wave of the emotion. Um, it's easy for me to do that at times. Um, so it's important for me to recognize when I don't have to let that happen every time I can feel the emotion, but I don't have to let it, um, take me into a like downward spiral. Yeah. It it goes back to what we were talking about with regards to meditation, being able to witness, you know, like Uh you can witness the emotion as a passing cloud. And not attach yourself to it. And I feel like when you attach yourself to it and you're like, oh, I am sad as opposed to I feel sad. I'm noticing sadness. Right. Um, And you start to identify with that, whatever that feeling is, that's when you can get stuck in it. Yes. And that's hard to do. (laughs) It's a practice. Big time. (laughs) For sure. You know, and like, 
my parents weren't taught this. They didn't know this. Their parents didn't know it. Right. That's the one amazing thing is that I feel like many people within our generation are exposed to this and it's becoming a more normal part of our conversations. It's in our awareness. And it's something that I feel like many people, our parents' age and grandparents' age, like they still aren't really aware of this concept. So I feel like we're at a great advantage knowing it. Yeah. I feel like being here in Austin allows us to be around a lot of people that are like pioneers within their spaces, like actual thought leaders, Mm -hmm. and exposes us to all this information that isn't being talked about in the mainstream, yet is still like vital and crucial to being just a well-balanced human being. And even though like our parents and our grandparents may not have had access to it, it's like we get to be the ones that learn and experience it. And then through embodiment, if they feel the call to learn, they have access to us. You know, like yeah. we're the resources. We're the, yeah. For sure. Um, and so I feel like for me, in regards to the nervous system, I wasn't too aware of the nervous system until I really started a slack line and get into highlining. And once I found out about the nervous system, I understood that that's what we're doing with highlining. Like we're learning how (laughs) to go from a sympathetic state and bring ourselves into a parasympathetic state so we can walk on this like Mm -hmm. one inch wiggle bridge that our nervous systems aren't (laughs) used to connecting with until we've had a a bunch of time and repetition. I'd say the slack line has probably been the biggest... um like mirror for me in that sense as to like my own nervous system out of anything I've done. I think Brittany said it, that it's a one inch mirror, (laughs) the slack line. It is. And I completely resonate with that. Um, and it's slack lining and highlining in particular has been something that has like activated my sympathetic nervous system. Um, you know, to an extent that I don't think many other things have. Um, and it's been a journey, um, to try to push through that. I feel like I'm making a little progress, but in Texas, it's mostly midlines over water when we're on leashed lines. And so if I'm still exposed to a high line, I am still, in that, like, very much sympathetic fight-or-flight state. Like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> what what highlines have you gotten on so far? Um, I can probably count them on, like, one hand, maybe two. Um, I've been slacklining for probably six years, maybe a little more now. Um, but the first few years were pretty much water lines and park lines. I didn't even know highlining existed. Um... So the first high line I got on, which I don't even know if it would really count as a high line. It was in Texas and it was probably like 70, 80 feet off the ground. So that's probably more like a midline. I'd consider that a high line. A high line? Yeah. I mean, it's not a very high high line, but I would definitely consider that more midline than I would. A high line more (laughs) than I would a midline. Okay. That was the first one I got on in Texas. Where was that at? It was at Sulphur Springs, um, this private land where you can camp. They have this canyon, um, like kind of 
ridge area and Jacob and Dan rigged a line there years ago when it was just like a really tight high line and I didn't try standing. I was still pretty beginner and I just scooted out there. And then the second time I got on a high line was actually in Arizona at Paradise Forks where you were, where we never met. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we both happened to be at the same Highline festival at that time in Paradise Forks. That was my first Highline festival. It was yours same. too, right? Yep. Yeah. And yeah, our paths just didn't cross at the time I was in a relationship where like I would feel really jealous and insecure seeing my partner with anyone else. Um, and sometimes to like avoid seeing my partner with someone else, I would just go and be by myself. And I spent a lot of time just like slacklining by myself mm-hmm. at the festival. And, and because of that, I missed out on what could have been some beautiful connections at the time yet were meant to be beautiful connections down the line. Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, that was the second time I got on a high line and the first time I tried to actually like stand. So I feel like that, that feels a little bit more like my first experience on one. Um, but then I guess since then I've been on those two, I've been to Puchero Chico, Mexico. Um, I've been to Linville Gorge in North Carolina got on a couple lines there, which probably was my favorite spot. It was beautiful. And then Moab last year, which was a crazy experience. Just the vast red rocks below you in the canyon. It's pretty chilling. <laughs> Not a comforting highline. So what about that was chilling? Well... Like I was saying earlier, because I've been on so few high lines and heights have always been a fear of mine since I was young, I've always probably had a little bit of an irrational fear of heights where when I'm near an edge, my legs feel kind of like weak and achy. Or if Jacob gets too close to a ledge on a hike, which he loves doing in front of me, (laughs) it makes me like cringe inside and I need him to like come back or I'm like a little anxious about him. Like I'm projecting my own (laughs) fears on him by an edge. So I've already kind of had a little like, yeah, tinge of a fear of heights throughout my life. Um, so highlining is like pretty terrifying. Um, however, if I'm over water or over trees, it just feels safer and softer, even though I know that also doesn't make any sense because even if you're 200 feet over trees, like, the trees wouldn't really protect you on the fall, but there's just this mental safety of like feeling safe with all the greenery in the forest versus being out in the red rocks of Moab. And it's just desert and rock and sand and like this harsh climate. It was also very cold. Um, and so it just feels not comforting (laughs) moving out onto this line where it's already like a pretty like scary space for me. And then I don't have, I guess like the forest giving me a hug also. So. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and, and the exposure, 
out at the fruit bowl. Yes. And in Moab is different than just being a few hundred feet off of some trees out in the forest. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, because there is that idea um, where if you were to fall, you would just... If you were to fall and not have a harness and a leash attached to you, then you would just slam right into the rocks beneath you. Whereas I could see the trees feeling a little bit safer. Um, And it's also just the irrational fears of the brain when I'm in that sympathetic state. So, like, you know, I'm scooting out on a high line, and I feel like other people can relate to this, too, especially you early on in their highlining journey where your body and brain is literally saying like, what the hell are you doing? You're going to die. Why are you going out on this like flimsy little rope? And then you're rational. You're trying to rationalize with yourself and say like, no, this rigging is safe. I know it's super safe. I've done this a thousand times, like over the water at pace bend. And so it's like this internal mental battle with self. (laughs) And a lot of the fears of falling are completely irrational because I know that the rating is extremely safe and redundant and it's checked multiple times a day. Yeah. And ultimately your system is just trying to keep you safe. Like it's just doing the best it can with what it knows at that time. Exactly. And eventually it, it gets more used to that space and it it calms down. Yeah. Yeah. And then you're not always in this like sympathetic state. You can be in more of a parasympathetic state. And not to say that, like, being in a sympathetic state is bad by any means. You no, know, it's I think... super useful. Right. It's useful for, I mean, exercise. And, I mean, even freestyle, you're probably sympathetic most of the time because you need so. that for your yeah. energy. But at the same time, if I'm too overdriven, then it's hard to calm my breath and calm my heart rate. Um, which if you're too overdriven, then you wear yourself out. It needs to be like that good balance of the two and being able to, I think resiliency is when you can shift from one to the other. Mm -hmm. And so that's been a practice and that's something that slacklining has absolutely, um, brought to the surface. And that's been a journey for me. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great tool for that, you know, for understanding the nervous system, for, being able to balance both sides of the body, the masculine and the feminine, the left side brain, the right side brain. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's a tool unlike anything that I've experienced before. And and last thing is just like when we're walking really big high lines, I think that's the state where we really want to be in a parasympathetic state. Oh, yeah, um, I can see that. Yeah, yeah, because if you're, if you're always like in this sympathetic state of like, needing all this energy for survival or for movement and explosiveness, then that's going to just drain you and make you not Mm -hmm. be able to calm down and walk a big high line. Whereas like if you're doing freestyle high line and you're doing all these tricks and you're bouncing and you're throwing combos, um, and, and being explosive, like sympathetic state. Mm -hmm. Perfect. That's what you want. Yeah. Yeah. I, so when I was in Costa Rica for fit for service, um, you're familiar with Kyle Kingsbury, right? Not really. So he was a UFC fighter for a while. Um, and then he got connected with Aubrey Marcus okay. and moved out to Austin to work at Haunted and become like the human optimization specialist. And like that nice. was kind of his role. And anyways, 
he ended up running through this exercise of he he referred to it as like clean anger. So like being able to take our anger and and channel it into very useful energy as opposed to um toxic masculinity or toxic mm-hmm. anger where you're just like having your anger control you mm-hmm. because it's so much energy that like you can actually use it as a force for good. And this exercise that he had us go through was like up your regulating and down regulating. So going from like a parasympathetic state. So we like calmed ourselves down with a little bit of breath work. And then we would do three different styles of breath to go up from parasympathetic to sympathetic and then back from sympathetic to parasympathetic. Mm -hmm. So what we ended up doing was doing quick inhales um, and then longer exhales kind of like what you were talking about, but bouncing around and utilizing movement in conjunction with the breath. So it was about an, a minute of going through the nose, out the nose, through the nose, out the mouth. So, so nose, nose for the first minute, nose, mouth for the second minute, mouth, mouth for the third minute. And then we just like took a pause, noticed what we felt, did like a forward fold, opened up, um, our spine and our chest, um, with like a chest opener standing up, like Mm -hmm. just shook it out a little bit and then went back to mouth, mouth, um, nose, mouth, and then nose, nose. And it just took you through that whole cycle of going from parasympathetic to sympathetic, being in sympathetic, Mm -hmm. feeling that, witnessing it, and then going back to parasympathetic. And that was something that I felt was going to be a tool for the rest of my life that I was going to drop into and will will drop into That's because awesome. yeah it's just like breath combined with movement for even 6 minutes completely changes your state right. um changes your perspective would say when i have a partner um or even just any relationship that i have it doesn't have to be a partner it could even be a relationship with you and some form yeah. like our connection yeah. you know like let's say there would be something that came up that frustrated me to be able to take six minutes to myself and move through that and then check in and be like, okay, so what's true here mm-hmm. is going to make any interaction or even just like that next interaction that we have so much more productive and present. Yeah. Yeah. Just like the minute of breathing in the car. And going in. Like that's it. You know, it doesn't really take that much time at all. Right. I even do that. Like, bring that into how I've managed on the slack line is, um, I'll just before standing up again, after I fall, get back on the line. And I usually take three to six, just like really big, full, deep breaths, like trying to like with a long, slow exhale to try to just calm down my breath and my heart rate before going again. So, so I'm not, um, I guess rushing into it when I'm a little bit too hyped up after doing something and exerting myself and then whipping and then climbing back up. So I take like short little bursts of that into onto the line to yeah maintain that balance. And if I don't, I feel like puking <laughs> on the line. Yeah. Have you ever puked on the line? No, but I got really close, um, where I was dry heaving at pace bend. I think it was like late 
2020 and it was a warm day outside still. Um, and I think I was doing quite a bit of bouncing on like bounce walking and then trying a few, um, like freestyle rolls on the line. And it's interesting. I don't, f- I don't feel like, uh, puking until I whip and then get back on top of the line. And then I'm sitting there for a second and then it, the feeling comes up. And so that particular time there was quite a bit of bouncing and it was really hot outside and I was pretty exerted. And I sat back on the line and I just started like dry heaving and I couldn't control it at all. <laughs> and I thought I was going to puke, but, um, I typically won't eat for at least like an hour before I get on the line. <laughs> Cause I do have a little bit of, of a propensity for like motion sickness. Um, so it was a good thing. Cause I probably would have totally puked all over the place. Um, and I remember at the time, like, turning away from my friends so that they would hopefully not witness me dry heaving <laughs> out on the slack line. <laughs> and it turns out no one was really watching. <laughs> <laughs> so it all worked out. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's a real thing. Like there's definitely been some moments where I was on the line and I felt like I was going to puke. And honestly, I think most of it happened because I just ate beforehand. Oh, yeah. 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 And when you're going hard, it's like after running a really intense race, you know, sometimes it makes you feel like puking. Yeah. I know some people, specifically Jonathan Lane, who can just eat a bunch of food and then go work out and do stuff. (laughs) 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 And when there's a lot of food in my belly, um, like, yeah, the thoughts for me are just like rest and digest. I don't want to do anything. Mm -hmm. I'm the same way. (laughs) So, Jacob and I didn't talk about this in the podcast, but I would love to hear kind of like the beginning of your guys' relationship. Mm. All right. Um, well, the slack line is how we met. Where'd you all meet? So, uh, we met at Sculpture Falls on the Greenbelt in Austin. Jacob was already there with some friends. How long ago was this? So, this was in 2014. Okay. May. I believe it was... I think it was May 31st. Yeah. Cool. I'm almost... Yeah, it was May 31st of 2014. Coming up on that seven year. Yeah. Wow. Exciting. Exciting. Um, and it was one of my friend's birthdays, so a few friends were in town visiting, and... I was just going to go to the green belt with them and go on a hike and swim and show them a little piece of Austin that I like hanging out around. And we hiked down to sculpture falls and that's where Jacob and some other friends were hanging out, had some water lines set up and they were bouncing and doing tricks. And I think this was pretty shortly after Jacob had just discovered what trick lining was and that you could set up a line over the water. And so he was like also pretty new to that scene, but he'd already been doing that a few months. And so, um, I didn't really know what slack lining was. I think I'd seen it a couple times in the park. Um, but I saw it pretty close over the water and I thought it looked fun and I was a gymnast growing up. So I, you know, very naively thought that, I could do it because I have good balance, you know. <laughs> um, 
quickly hum- humbled, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the balance beam is a bit yeah, different. Very than the slack different. Line. Yeah, very different. A static four inch balance beam versus a one inch wobbly bridge. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. different. So I swam over there and wanted to try it out. And I asked if someone could give me a few pointers since I hadn't done it before. And Jacob, of course, graciously offered. <laughs> So we spent an hour like talking and, uh, you know, he was teaching me, he was trying to teach me how to do a like chongo or a sit start of some sort, um, which would not happen on the first day over the water, (laughs) but we spent some time together and he liked that whenever he said, do you want to learn the quick way or the right way? I said the right way. (laughs) Um, and it was going to be either like walking off the edge versus trying to scoot out and sit start because that area has an edge where like as a beginner, you technically could kind of walk off if someone else was there to like help you, even though I still wouldn't do it or recommend it because it's still kind of sketchy. Yeah. It's super sketchy. Um, but from that point on, (laughs) uh, he, I was about to leave with my friends and neither of us had a phone. And I was like, all right, well, this is great. Like, I'll see you later, you know? <laughs> and he wanted my number, um, and he actually memorized it because neither of us had a cell phone with us. <laughs> so he memorized my number, and I said bye, and then the rest is history. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Heard from him very shortly after, and, yeah, pretty much from the get-go, we, like... There wasn't, weren't any real games in the beginning. Like, it wasn't like the first day we met we were dating, but from our first date on and talking, we, like, I knew what his intentions were. They were clear. It was clear that he liked me and I liked him, and it was just this very kind of, like, natural, fluid progression into dating. Yeah, it, it was like this organic thing that it didn't doesn't sound like it needed to be forced at no. all. Like, it just seemed like the natural evolution of what was going to happen. Yeah. And neither of us, like we never had to have a conversation of like, are we exclusive? Because it was, you know, clear from the beginning, like neither of us were like seeing other people or dating a bunch of people trying to find the one, like both of us were just living our lives and, um, hanging out with friends and trying to follow passions. And we met and, just really connected. And so it wasn't something either of us was looking for, but I feel like that's usually when like the best things happen. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're not, you're not trying to create something. It kind of just naturally comes to you Mm -hmm. at the time that it's supposed to. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it's something I wanted. It's not just the, something that blindsided me completely. I kind of dated some people and just never really found the connection of someone um where we felt that way about each other and that we aligned on a lot of important like core values and got along well and we had a good time together and yeah none of it was none of it was forced I forgot where I was going with that <laughs> it's okay <laughs> Yeah, so I really connect with this this quote or idea that that which you seek is also seeking you. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could you could say that as far as like a relationship goes. Like 
that sacred union divine partner that you're you're calling in or looking for is also calling you in right. looking for you. That's the track we were on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I feel like you can also like it goes beyond relationship. You can like be the birthing of a business. It can mm-hmm. be um your dreams. Like if you're having these dreams um that speak so strongly to you, they also want you to bring them to fruition. Like they they want to be birthed into mm-hmm. existence. They're seeking you just as much, if not more, than you are seeking them. Right. And I'm not quite sure where I was going with all of that. Well, I think it's like, you know, Jacob and I, I think individually had wanted someone like this to connect with, but neither of us at the time were like, let me go out and date a bunch of people to find that one fit. It was just um, when when I guess we met and connected and just after a few dates, we both kind of knew that it was good for both of us and it was a fit and it wasn't something that we sought out, but it was something that both of us had, I think manifested individually. And I didn't know in the first few dates I was going to marry him necessarily. I just knew it was a good connection and something I wanted to continue pursuing. At what point, do you feel like that shift started to happen where you're like, oh, I want to marry this man? <laughs> hmm. For me, some people say they know at like a very precise moment, but for me, it wasn't quite like that. I felt, I felt like it all naturally progressed like organically in that way. Um, but it was a thought in my mind early on, even in the relationship, because I think, um, a lot of people, at least I do, you know, I, I thought about the idea of marriage and wanting to have a family and things like that in my future. Um, so at this time, I think I was already, what was I? 23. Yeah, I was 23. And so I'm in a relationship with someone that I really care for. And so the idea of marriage came into my mind pretty early on, not like, oh, I for sure want to marry him, but like, can I see myself marrying this person? And I feel like early on in our relationship, I definitely felt like he was, a, would, would be a great person to marry. Um, but I'm also pretty practical and I'm like, well, I think that even if you have a great connection, you still need to like grow and know that person for a while to really know. Um, I was recently graduated from college starting like my career in nursing. And so it was a time in our lives where there's lots of things that are changing. And so I think it's important to stay with people for a little bit of time before making that decision. Um, but I feel like, I don't know, probably within the first year or two, I feel like I had a pretty strong feeling like, I can see myself marrying this person. And then after, you know, a few more years, it's like, we both pretty much know for sure. And we've already had the conversation with each other. Like I see myself getting married and having a family. And, um, I think both of us knew for a while before we even got engaged, you know, we'd had that open conversation, like that we see, we see ourselves as a family in the future. Um, so like the engagement came to no surprise because we knew what each other's, um, expectations were. Mm -hmm. That's always been something I think from the get go, like I kind of alluded to earlier is that there weren't 
like games or questioning whether he liked me or whether he was going to text me back. I felt like I knew based on his actions and his words that were consistent. Um, I knew that I could trust him and that I didn't have to worry like I had with some relationships in the past. And then I think that's where some of the jealousy comes in. Um, when you feel like you can't fully trust the person. Yeah. Yeah. Big time. And, and that lack of trust is also kind of like an extension of lack of trust with yourself. Yes. Right. Like the jealousy arises, at least for me in this form of like, Oh, if someone that I love is expressing some form of love for someone else, then it must mean that they don't love me as much anymore. Mm -hmm. Kind of scarcity. Yeah, scarcity to mindset when it's not like that, you know? Right. It's not like that at all. And my connection with love has to always come from myself first, Mm -hmm. you know? Like, I can only love someone as deeply as I love myself. And that's a little bit of a side tangent. Um from y'all's relationship but it's all related yeah it's all it's all related and and yeah it's just it's it's cool that even just like a year or two in like you understood each other's intentions and you always had that like strong um foundation and trust and authenticity and connection and communication and it seems like that's something that's just continued to evolve over the course of the years within your relationship, as well as the ways you're able to articulate yourselves and connect with other people within the Slackline community. Thanks, Cam. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, like, even when there was some stuff that came up with a member of the community that um, brought a lot of separation based off of that person's actions, um, and we were in this place of like trying to figure out what the story was and what the truth is. I always respected both of your maturities around the whole situation and, mm. and opening up the dialogues of conversation to just get clear as to what was actually happening. Thanks. I appreciate that. Jacob probably did a, did so a little, uh, quite a bit more than I did, but I have this kind of strong urge to like know and tell the truth so I'm really not like a good joker even because I'm really bad at lying (laughs) and like trying to sugarcoat things so um I feel like that you know kind of showed in that situation um within you know the slackline community um as well as you know my relationship with him and with friends but just being able to talk openly and be honest, even if it is the more difficult thing to say or to hear, I think is super important. You know, I mean, being, being happy and lied to, um, or bypassing something going on and just, you know, being happy and positive, but not really looking at some truth, um, to me is, not how I want to live my life. I would rather know the truth or the hard thing and be sad or unhappy than to be like blissfully unaware. It's also not sustainable because whatever that thing is that 
you're suppressing or attempting to bypass um, and just sweep under the rug is going to come back out. Mm -hmm. And it's going to come back out instead of with, like, one scary head, but now with, like, three roaring heads. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's had time to fester and... Um, just serve as this open wound that you totally disregarded until it's like really infected. Right. And, and that's another thing that I really connect with, um, from one of my mentors through podcasts, Mm -hmm. uh, his name's Eric Godsey. And he talks about how you trying to keep the truth from someone else as a way to protect their ego Mm. is detrimental to their spirit because you don't know what their spirit can actually handle. Right. You know, you're trying to keep someone safe Mm -hmm. um, by not telling them the truth is only harming them and it's harming you as well. Whereas if you can like bring to the table the truth, even though it's going to make both of you uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. like that is going to, help with not only the evolution of your psyche, but also your soul. And I believe that. Yeah. And what's, what's happening here for you in this lifetime. Right. Cause um, I think withholding the truth is an ego mechanism to protect that person. And potentially protect and, yourself and too. Yourself, right? right. Yeah. 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 One more point that I really wanted to hit on that came up was that, I find it so beautiful that you have such a strong core value with regards to the truth and you're also within the medical system (laughs) because it allows you to connect with what's not the truth and start to almost be like a scout Mm -hmm. and connect with these new ideas and these other forms of medicine Mm -hmm. that even if they're not being fully embraced by Western society, that doesn't Mm -hmm. mean that there's not benefit change and transformation Mm -hmm. and a lot of value within those Mm -hmm. systems. I mean, like a hundred years from now, our understanding of science is going to be completely different. Our understanding of the medical system, the human system, the psyche, the mind, the body, the spirit, it's all going to be completely different. So to be in this moment, disregard so many other things just because they're new or a little Mm -hmm. uncommon to you, yet they have so much value, I think, is a detriment to the collective. Yes, I agree. Wholeheartedly with that. Um, and that's kind of why I like functional medicine. It is like a n- kind of newer term, probably in the last like decade, probably a little longer. Um, but more so recently has become, I think, a little bit more well-known among more people. But it kind of is merging both worlds, um, because it, it is still looking at science and evidence and lots of lab work. Um, but it's also bringing in aspects of more kind of like Eastern medicine in the sense of like your, your energy and your stress levels and your movement. And it's kind of a blend of a little bit of like Western medicine, a little bit of more like Eastern traditional practices, but it's not Chinese medicine. Um, as well as like your genetic influences and how your lifestyle influences your genes. Um, so I, I feel like it's the future of medicine because, um, we can't just make people well and optimized with new medications all of the time and new technological advances. At some point we have to really like support the system as a whole. Um, and so 
I really appreciate what Western medicine can offer um, and the advanced technologies because with car accidents and like extreme like traumatic events, you know, that normally would kill you, we can survive and live through that. Um, but I also am very aware of its limitations and there are many. Um, and so that's why I also really appreciate these other modalities of more holistic health and Eastern medicine and yoga practices and Ayurveda. And I try to see the truth in all of those things rather than being dogmatic about one and saying, this is the only way. Um, I feel like everyone is, you know, with all of these different ways of approaching health, they're all trying to do good and benefit the person. Um, so I feel like there's truth in all of them, but we need to kind of extract that truth and bring it together. Yeah. And there's moments where things, where one is more appropriate than the other, yes. right? Like you said, with a car accident, you want Western medicine. You don't want essential oils. Yeah. You don't want essential oils or somebody to come in right. and be like, um, so actually you're just consuming too much sugar. What you need is more avocados and fish oil and fats. <laughs> you need a lifestyle change. No, what you need is to like get some surgery because right. you had the windshield, like, pulverize your abdominal walls and it's gone through your pancreas or something, yeah. you know, like there's value in both. And, and to say one is better than the other and discount the other because mm -hmm. you're so structured with like, this is the way and there can be no other way. Same with religion too, yes. right? Like yes. if you look at religions and you like distill beyond the stories, the core components okay. of it, it's the same. It's the same. It's the same. <laughs> It's the same. And it's like y'all are arguing over the same thing when you boil it down. Yeah. And so something that like really messed with me as a kid, um, I, di I didn't go to church. That didn't mess with me. That was totally fine. Uh, I just wanted to preface with that. But what did mess with me was connecting with other kids um, and hearing these ideas that they were getting from the church around like, this is the only way. And if you don't follow this religion, um, then you're like less than human. And, and that like created this idea for me that was really conflicting behind like, if one religion says that their God created this planet and this world, and then there's another religion saying that their God did it mm -hmm. yet, we're all on the same planet and we're all the same species, mm -hmm. like isn't it all just the same God? <laughs> you know, like there's no disparity between it. Right. Like the only actual difference is just within the story um, and the characters within the story. Yet it's yeah. all the same. And, and the language in which the story is told. That too. Yeah. And maybe some of the cultures and the practices mm -hmm. around the, the celebration of of the story. Um, I remember having that same conflicting thought at a young age. Um, cause I was raised Methodist and went to church every Sunday with my family. And I remember also being taught that you have to believe in Jesus Christ and that, you know, he is your savior and he was put on this earth so that, you can be saved and be forgiven of your sins. And if you don't believe in that story, um, 
and that Jesus is Christ, then you're going to hell basically because you haven't accepted him. And so like the, it's taught that you can, you know, because of Jesus, you can sin and still be accepted into heaven. So by that, by that, you know, set of rules, you can be essentially like a really bad person and sin all the time and commit adultery and murder. But then if you accept Jesus, then you go to heaven. But then what about the person who lives in an Islamic country and they've never been exposed to Christianity and they live um, like a, a good moralistic life and they're essentially, you know, following the Ten Commandments, but they've never been introduced to Jesus. Does that person go to hell because they haven't accepted him? And so that's like been a conflicting thought in my mind since I was very young and I just can't buy into that. doesn't feel, that doesn't feel right. I think an all loving God is not going to shun someone to a fiery pit because they haven't been introduced to Christianity. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like an all loving God is not going to create everything within the universe to be anything other than perfect just as it is. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we get really tripped up about because we're not told that we're perfect just as we are. You know, we're told that there's something wrong with us in some form that humanity is broken Mm -hmm. and they're already flawed. And that's why God is separate from us because Mm -hmm. we're flawed. And then everything that we do in our lives is going to dictate whether we go to heaven or hell. Yet that's not the case. They got wrapped up in the story and the story, like the truth of the matter is like heaven and hell is here, right here, right now. It's your own inner world. It's your own inner psyche. And you choose to create heaven for yourself here, or you choose to create hell for yourself here. And to be honest, most of the people that are so wrapped up in the idea of heaven or hell are probably creating hell for themselves. (laughs) Um, Right here and right now with the idea that heaven is going to come later. But no, we came here to experience heaven. Right. Yeah. 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 And I also feel like, yeah, God is ever loving and all being because God is literally everyone. God is in everyone. It is everything. So, yeah, that's here. That's now. That's not necessarily in in the future. We're, we're living that. And I do think that, yeah, the duality of heaven and hell is present in everything. Yeah. And another thing is, like, what would Jesus say if Jesus actually came here and saw how people were worshiping him? He would say that we shouldn't all be judging each other and fighting against each other. At least that's what I think he would say. You know, he did say that, you know, he said, you should love everyone like your brother and sister. And you should love and help the people who do you wrong even more. So, you know, just cause this other person doesn't have the same beliefs as you or the same political views as you doesn't mean you should love them less. Yeah. Yeah. There are brothers and sisters and something beyond that, that I really connected with. Um, my friend Jason that I met in Costa Rica, mm-hmm. he's like a really tapped in, um, to nature medicine man. And he was referring to the birds 
as his brothers and sisters and like the trees and just all, all of these things that initially went beyond my scope. Mm -hmm. Um, and understanding of what it means to have a brother and sister. Like I thought like, Oh yeah, easy to see other humans as my brothers and sisters, but then to like really extend it out and realize that everything on this planet is your family makes you feel really responsible. Right. Um, for to those be able things. to extend that love totally. to these other living things that maybe are just plants. Yeah. And that's the love of the divine. That's love of source. That's love of God is to love everything. Yeah. Um, because the way I see it is like either everything is God or nothing is God. Mm-hmm. And if we're coming from source, like we're all of source. So we all have aspects of source within us. That's mm-hmm. not to say that we came here to be as God in a way of like, oh, I am God. You know, like some people will get really lost in their own right. sauce and go down some crazy rabbit right. holes and be like, oh, yeah, I'm God. <laughs> Not necessarily Not like, that. like that, but it's something that you can honor that you are an aspect of the divine experiencing what it means to be the divine in human form around mm-hmm. a lot of other aspects of the divine experiencing what it means to be the divine in whatever form they are, whether that be a bird, whether that be a tree, whether that be, um, they're all, and and the Bible even says that we're all his divine creation. So is the story of Adam and Eve just of them or is it of like each and every one of us? Like we're all like the creation. We're all source. We're all source. Yeah. And that's what it is. And, and I feel like this, the stories are, maybe possibly true, but also parable Yes, designed to portray a certain like moral and ethical guidelines as well as social guidelines for that time because they needed some sort of social order without like traditional governments. Yeah. I mean, like think about how lessons are passed on mm-hmm. most of the time through stories. Like we learn through stories and to get caught up in, in these stories and just saying that, like, oh, these stories are absolutely truth without just being like, oh, you know, there's some really beautiful lessons here for us right. in these stories. And one more point that I want to, like, bring up around Jesus is, like, homie was just tapped into a frequency that we're all, we all have access to, you know? Yeah. We all are able to attune to that, like Christ consciousness, that like form of enlightenment, um, that allows us to like really see and be heaven on earth. Yeah. And it's not like, Oh, Jesus was the only one that has access to it. And now we need to like worship him as a God and a deity. He's the, that creates further separation. mm -hmm. He's an example for us to live by. And it's, actually pretty cool to think about someone during that time being on that level of just knowing. And I feel like there's other figures like Buddha and I'm not well versed in other religions, but I'm sure there's other like very, very similar um, characters and people who've had that kind of divinity and like known it but it's not that it's only unique to them like you were saying i feel like it's within all of us if we learn how to tap into that 
Yeah. And there's so many ways that you can learn how, you know, like that's the beautiful thing is for one person connecting with the divine and learning what it means to be God may come through painting for okay. us. It may come through slacklining or sitting down and recording a podcast, or it could even come from like making a beautiful meal for people that you love and oh, yeah. sharing like the abundance of, of food and yeah. resources and nourishment. It could even come from like you sitting up against a tree and simply breathing like Buddha. <laughs> <laughs> it can come from suffering and pain as well. Like there's so many ways that we can find God within ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, that it doesn't necessarily mean we need to go to church every Sunday and read the scriptures to a T and not to say that there's not value in that. Yeah. It's just that that's not the only way. Right. I agree. I think the church can be anywhere you make it. Yeah. It can be. It doesn't need a roof. No, (laughs) no. And it doesn't need to be outside yourself either. Yeah. That's true. You really can create church within yourself. Mm-hmm. You can honor that this is your sacred temple. Right. And that's, I mean, I'm drawing another parallel to like medicine. Cause I feel like my brain's always on that track, but like, um, looking outside of yourself is what I feel like our Western medical model does in a way. People look to the doctor as like, the only expert and the person who's going to fix them and give them the thing to cure them. Um, and I think we're learning that we have it within us that, you know, of course, experts and doctors are absolutely critical and we do need like traditional treatments and high tech medicine sometimes. Um, but also we do have a lot of that power within ourselves. Um, so we don't always need to put it in someone else's hands. There's a lot of things that we can do on a daily hourly basis to take control of our health, of our divinity. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like we're so accustomed to consuming as a culture that we automatically assume the solution to our problem has to be outside ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yet, if we are the divine made manifest into the form of whatever form we're in, we have the answers within us. Everything we need is already within. Right. You already have the answers. Which is a heady thing to think about. Yeah. I mean, I definitely um, have a hard time with that because sometimes am I, I am, I have a hard time differentiating between my ego and my intuition. And sometimes it's very clear and I know, and then there's other times probably when I'm getting wrapped up in the emotion and letting that kind of take me when it's like, what do I want in this situation? You know, am I just wanting this? Cause that's what my ego wants out of safety and protection for me. Or like, is it this other alternative? So, um, sometimes if I don't know a choice to make and I sit with myself, sometimes I can figure it out. And other times I'm like more confused. (laughs) Yeah. How have you been able to like differentiate between (laughs) your ego and your intuition? Um, Hmm. 
That's hard. So, for me, when I tune in, and I don't do this all the time, yet it's something that I've done more recently than have not, I'll, like, check in with my body Mm -hmm. when I'm curious as to, is this coming from my ego or is this coming from my intuition? And most of the time, my intuition resides in either my heart or my gut. Mm -hmm. And if... If the voice after turning into my body is coming from either of those places, I know it's more of my intuition. Yeah. Um, whereas, like, intuition feels more like a feeling. And, yes. And ego seems like it's coming from the mind, and it's, like, these stories that are right. being played out. I do think that's probably why at times, like, if I just continue thinking about it and continue on the thought loops, then it can be confusing because I think that's when my ego stories are playing. And then when I'm wrapped up in that, it's hard to pull back and kind of like see the, see the big picture. Um, so I do feel like when it's intuition, I can usually know pretty immediately, like which way I want to go. Um, sometimes like the longer I ponder on it, then all these other like alternatives come up. I know it's kind of vague. No, it it makes sense. And just doing some of the things we talked about earlier. Like if I'm, if I'm struggling with something, if I just take the steps to kind of get myself right. Um, sometimes I know if I'm stuck in like the emotions or the ego story, I know certain things that can help. And water is one of them, like getting in water, whether it be the shower or like submerging myself in Barton Springs, like, um, kind of like washing off just the energy, the feeling, especially if it's cold water, like the springs, um, that's something that helps or sometimes just like getting outside anywhere, like in nature, um, or going on a walk or, um, something outside with Jacob and the dogs, just something to like get away and not think about that for a while. So usually if I'm having a hard time with something and don't know which direction to take or, Um, I'm just kind of like stuck, stuck in those loops a lot. I've now been learning to recognize it and be like, okay, stop. Just like go do the other thing for a while and get out of it and then come back later and think about it. Yeah. Like sometimes it really just takes putting that thing on the back burner and not being okay, cool. So we have two different modes of thinking. We have the focus mode, which I think is mainly happening in our like prefrontal cortex and it's when you're like trying to figure out a problem or um, executive thinking, just learning something new. I feel like that. Yeah. That probably lies under there. And then we have this diffuse mode of thinking, um, which is almost like a greater mode of thinking and they're both necessary, but the dispute diffuse mode of thinking is like, let's say you, had something that you were working on, but you didn't know what the answer was. And then you were to fall asleep and then wake up with the answer. It's because your diffuse mode of thinking Mm. was working on that problem in the back burner. And another thing that you can do, multiple things that you can do is like, go get in water, go for a walk, juggle, play a song on an instrument that you're already comfortable playing Mm -hmm. to where you don't really have to focus. And then that thing just like, 
ends up working itself out. And you're like, oh, yeah. Yeah. It's so clear. Because you can't always rationalize or think your way through every problem. No way. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you just don't know what you don't know. And there's aspects of things that you just can't see in that present moment. Mm-hmm. You know, right. If you're only, like, looking at a problem from the same angle, you're going to be blind to everything else around you. Because mm-hmm. you're going to have tunnel vision. You'd be so just asphyxiated and like, oh, this is how it has to be. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you get rigid and you get tight, and then it's a lot easier to break you because you're so, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Same thing, like, if you were in a car accident. Like, you you want to be as relaxed as possible right. getting into an accident you because... Go with the flow. Yeah, it, your body is going to be relaxed and not tense and, and not get as hurt. Yeah. It's another practice, learning to surrender and let go of control. How have you learned to practice surrender and and trust and faith and releasing control? I feel like there are very concrete examples within my marriage because it's a partnership. And when you live with someone and have your life with them, there's always... Um, you know, a push and pull on what I want versus what he wants versus what we both want together. And so I feel like that's a very concrete example. Um, just learning how to compromise and like when something is important and when I don't need to be in control, um, of a certain situation, but I don't know if that's what you're referring to or more so like just with self surrendering to the moment. Um, And in that sense, I feel like I'm naturally a pretty good compromiser and fairly good at going with the flow. I don't think I'm super rigid as far as um, the plans have to go my particular way. I'm usually pretty open when it comes to that. So I don't think I'm extremely type A in that sense to begin with. Um but I think I have more of a problem letting go of control with myself. I think I like to be very in control of, you know, my emotions and my experience and what's going to happen the next day. And, um, I've learned that I do like a sense of routine because it's, I guess, some predictability. And so there's times when my routine gets thrown off for some reason and I don't get to go to bed when I want to. Um, and sometimes I can be a little bit rigid when it comes to that. Um, So I've learned that certain things that are extremely important to me are my boundaries and things that I need to uphold. But then when it comes to other stuff in life, I don't need to be quite as rigid. So it's also a practice and learning what's super important and what I can let go of. Um, What I need to like, you know, stay steadfast and put my foot down or when I can just like let it go and be like, okay, it's not a big deal. So I guess boundaries in a way are kind of what helps me like, okay, these are the really important things, um, but other stuff isn't as big of a deal. And I mean, there's times where I let little things get me bent out of shape. Of course <laughs> I'm human. Yeah. Yeah. We all are. And, and that's just a practice within itself. Like a reminder of like, Oh, well, these little things I don't have control over. How can I just, 
surrender to that. Right. And be okay with what is. Right. I think uh, just trying to breathe through it is normally my number one uh, tool to move through uncomfortable situations. Whether it be pain or fear or something in my schedule getting super thrown off, if I can usually take a few breaths, I can release a little bit of that kind of tight, rigid feeling. Yeah. It goes back to what we were just talking about, like at the beginning of this podcast. It's all the same. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it all comes back to, comes back to breath and regulating your nervous system and, and giving yourself that space when you need it. Right. Cause I think naturally I can be fairly quick to react. I'm not an extremely patient person, I think by nature. But I'm also learning that we can change so much and our brains change so much, um, especially if you do certain things to kind of, um, you know, stimulate neuroplasticity. And so just because I am by nature this way doesn't mean it needs to always be that way. So um, it has been a practice of trying to take a moment before reacting, trying to be a little bit more patient, um, not let things get me bent out of shape, not worry about what's coming in the future if it's not worth um, having the stress over. So, I mean, those are ultimate goals and things that I'm working towards. Yeah, but I mean, like, even having the understanding that you may be showing up in a way in one moment that you don't, you're not really that stoked about. You're not enthused that that's how you're showing up Mm -hmm. and understanding that you don't have to be that way for the rest of your life, that you can learn a new pattern, right? You can unprogram yourself and reprogram yourself with a behavior, a way of acting that actually serves you in the way that you want to show up better moving forward. Um, I mean, just that understanding that you can change yourself is is the true power because I've, I've connected with so many people and there's, there's a lot of people in my life as well as there's ways in which I had this idea that, Oh, I'm this way right now. I can't change. Mm -hmm. And I've had the experience of changing and looking back on where I was at that one moment. And now I know that's not the truth. Right. We can change, Mm -hmm. you know, if you're addicted to something, being consistent and choosing that you want to show up in a different way. And even if you fall off that horse, just having the awareness that, okay, over time, there is going to be incremental change. And I just need to continue getting back on, on track, on path, course correcting when I fall off is going to create the change that I'm looking for. For sure. And change is sometimes viewed in a negative light. When someone says, oh, you've changed, like you're not who you used to be. And I don't feel like that's a great way to look at it. I think if you don't change throughout your life, then you're doing something wrong. (laughs) If you're the same exact person all the time, um, unless you're just like a really amazing saint just from birth. Um, But I think change can be a really good thing. Yeah. I mean, change is evolution. It is. Right? It's growth. Yeah. And and oftentimes, those people that are like, oh, you're 
changed, you're different, um, are projecting their ideas of how you're supposed to be onto Mm -hmm. you. Right. Yet that's not it, you know? Like, you choose who you want to be. You choose how you show up. And that may also change certain relationships in your life. And that, that is life. That is life. You know, we're not supposed to do this dance with the same people throughout the whole, mm-hmm. whole course of it. You or know? modify your behavior to meet someone else's expectation of you or what they need you to be in that moment. We can't live that way. No, and sometimes it comes through the lessons of modifying your behavior and changing yourself to meet the expectations of someone else to realize that, oh, that's not actually the way I want to show up. Mm-hmm. You know, we live in this at this moment in time, Earth is very dualistic and polarized. Uh-huh. And I've been feeling that. often we have to learn through contrast. We have to learn through what we don't like to realize what we like, in a way. You know, we have to learn through what it feels like not to show up to understand what it means to show up. Uh-huh. We have to learn through a toxic relationship to realize what a healthy relationship yeah, is. Yeah, sometimes, yeah, it does sometimes take that. You can oftentimes. plug so many more examples in there. Yet... Most of us, I want to say, like, at least 95% of the human population is learning through contrast. hmm Yeah. I can definitely think of many times where it's taken that to kind of learn the lesson. And ultimately, you learn. You know, like, that's a beautiful thing. Like, okay, you're in the muck. You may feel a little stuck. Yeah. (laughs) 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 Eventually, you're not in that anymore. Yeah. So, speaking of not being in what you're familiar with anymore, you're progressing towards this more nomadic lifestyle where you're going from living in an apartment with a lot of items and moving into a van with less things. Jacob and your dogs. Yep. Mowgli and Kuja. <laughs> what do you feel about van life and like where's your excitement there? My excitement is in all of the experiences that are ahead of us because I am very aware that I will be leaving a lot of comforts of the city, our friend group, my comfy bed, air conditioning 24 7. Um, there are going to be things that I miss and challenges on a daily basis, but it's the experiences that we know we want to have that have been the driving force from the beginning. We have a great life here. Don't get me wrong. And we enjoy it. But there's also this desire that Jacob and I have both had that we want to explore a little bit more before we someday buy a house and potentially have kids. And we're at a place where taking an extended road trip is not impossible, but a lot more challenging. And there's so many people that I've seen work really, really hard all through their youth, save money, do the things that they're supposed to do. And told they, they're supposed to do told quote unquote. Yes. That society, that society tells you you're supposed to do to be quote unquote successful and quote unquote happy. And they have a dream to get an RV and travel when they retire. And then it doesn't happen because 
sometimes someone gets really sick, they're not able to do that, someone dies, um, you don't have the energy to move in that same capacity. And so we both have talked about it and said, you know, while we're young and we're able, we want to explore more of even just the United States, because with working a full-time job since I graduated college, um, the most time I can get off is two weeks, and it's hard to get off in a row. So the idea of doing a road trip to the West Coast or to Canada or to Baja, Mexico is, you know, pretty slim. And we decided that we want to seek out those experiences and those opportunities, and we will shape other things in our lives to cater towards that. And so, you know, from the beginning, the excitement of doing this and seeing more and experiencing it together um, has been the biggest motivation. And for me, that's enough to overcome a lot of the potential discomforts, which I don't know all of them yet. I'll be able to tell you more once we're actually living in the van, I'm sure. (laughs) Um, But I think being able to go see the country with my husband and our dogs and spend time with friends in other states and know that we don't have to catch a flight home on Sunday Um, because this is our life. Um, you know, it far outweighs the fears about living that kind of lifestyle. And hopefully I will feel that same way (laughs) once we're in it. And, um, we've tested it out, done like a few nights in it, some overstays to test out the systems. And of course it's not a hundred percent complete yet. Um, but the times that I have been able to stay in it and do an overnight, are super exciting and I'm like stoked on it already. Yeah. I feel like you're going to be really stoked when y'all are doing it full time. And there's just so much magic when you dive into that fear of the unknown. Yeah. 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 Because you just, you don't know what's available to you within the unknown until you commit to it and say yes. Mm -hmm. And who knows? Y'all could have had this idea and then decided not to do it. And then 10 years down the line, um, you have like a four-year-old and a six-year-old, and then you don't have the opportunity and you still have this idea of like, oh, what if? Right. And now you don't have to play with that idea because you committed to the unknown Mm -hmm. and what may seem a little scary because it's unfamiliar, yet will ultimately lead to so much happiness and joy and fulfillment when y'all decide to settle down. Yeah, absolutely. I've definitely thought about that too. I don't want to look back and regret not doing certain things. Um, and it was actually an idea several years ago to go travel and live in a van and quit our jobs. Um, and then we actually did not do it. Jacob got a, a career opportunity and he and with my support also decided that that would be a smart move, you know, the move that everyone says you're supposed to do. Um, and we put these plans just on the back burner. And so it was, you know, probably about a year and a half ago or so, um, or maybe two years ago now we started kind of 
bringing up the idea again. And I told Jacob at one point, I was like, okay, I'm 28. I'm turning 29 next year. That's really close to 30. And if we're going to ever do this, we have to do it now. Like, (laughs) I'm not going to wait another two years and then play with the idea again. Like, if we're going to do it, we need to do it or we're not going to do it at all. And so then we just decided, all right, let's do it and pull the trigger. And so we started just actively looking for a van Um, And then once we got the van, started building it out and then actively starting to look for work opportunities um, that can lend well to van life. So mostly remote work so that we can make it a lifestyle, not just an extended vacation where we blow all of our money and then have to come back in a few months. So, yeah, that was the evolution of why we wanted to do it and not have regrets and just taking that plunge and I have had many times throughout the last year of building it out of thinking like, what the fuck are we doing? Like, okay, I'm 30 now. I'm moving into a van when a lot of my friends are like buying houses and having babies. And so there have been some times where it's probably the ego story coming in and comparing and being like, this isn't what you're supposed to do. And I have to sometimes remind myself of like the initial drive And, um, I can say wholeheartedly that I'm super excited about it and I'm trusting the process that there are going to be so many opportunities and experiences that I could have never predicted. And I feel like it's the right path for us. So many, so many. Yeah. I mean, like the divine is going to be able to write the story of your life better than you possibly could. Right. yourself and that requires you just trusting and surrendering and have faith yep. and yeah I mean like there are going to be people in your life that you grew up with that are at this point where they're buying houses and having kids and that's just the life and the process that they've chosen but if you decide to put that off for like two years you're only 32 you're still young as I fuck I know yes dude. I am you know? <laughs> um, and I feel old no. I feel very I feel young I don't feel 30 at all. I feel 23 forever. Yeah. And that's the thing, though. Like, for reals. Like, taking care of yourself. Watching your energy levels. Like, making sure you're doing the things that just make you feel like a healthy human being are going to allow you to continue to feel that way. You know, neurons that fire together, wire together. So if those are the neural pathways that you're creating, you're just going to continue to create more habits and more neural pathways and ways in which you get to experience that. Mm -hmm. You know, like, you could say that five years from now, you're going to be healthier than you are right now. And that could be the truth. Like, you really could create that for yourself. For sure. Um, and I've, it's really inspiring to see, to witness it also in other people. There's this one yoga account on Instagram I like to follow. Um, and this particular woman started her yoga practice after having two children. And prior to that, I think she'd done other things like surfing, but had never done dance or gymnastics or anything that, you know, would make her just a great yoga practitioner from the get go. And she developed a super strong handstand practice and ended up creating a lot of educational content on handstands and backbending and hosts retreats and all these things and is in killer shape. And she start yeah, she started yoga and handstands 
in her mid thirties after two kids. And her practice is amazing. It's incredible. So it's really inspiring to see other people who are just crushing it in their thirties, forties, fifties. Yeah. And to help remind you that you don't need to be on this certain like timeline that's been like kind of preconceived. And even beyond that, like I had a slackline coaching client who I think started slacklining when she was 59 after she retired from being an English school teacher. Wow. And I think we started working together when she was 61 and we focused more on like mindset around highlining Uh and like she is only getting better. And she's saying that she feels like she has more energy and more vitality at this stage in her life than she did. When she was even younger. So That's if so she's cool. in her 60s right now and she's saying that this is the healthiest and the youngest she's ever felt, like, what's like what's the ceiling, right? Yeah. Like, what actually is the limitation? Because it's definitely not 30. Sure as fuck no. isn't 26, Mm-mm. you know? <laughs> <laughs> Just getting started. And it's probably not 40 or 50. Um, and... I keep coming back to this. I've said it a lot on the podcast, but the oldest tightrope walker was 88 years old. Wow. So, like... Yeah. What's the cutoff in age for this sport? Even beyond this sport, you know? Like, mm-hmm. what's the cutoff in age for just taking care of yourself and feeling vibrant right. and full of life? Just being well able to stand up off the ground. That is something that so many people lose as they age. Just being able to go from sitting cross-legged to standing. And, I mean even better without using your hands. But there's a lot of people in their fifties that can't do that. And that's like, that's scary to me. I hope I can move in that way until I'm 90. Yeah. And what's going to allow you to do that is just continuing to move in the ways that you're moving right now mm-hmm. so that your body is, is just familiar with it. Like that's what's ingrained into right. your system. But a lot of these people, as they get older, like, they move a lot less. They're more comfortable being on the couch. Mm-hmm. They're like being programmed by chilling in front of the TV. Right. Um, and that's why they can't squat down because you're always sitting on a chair or a couch and never working the muscles it takes to get from sitting on the ground up to a squat and stand. And in other cultures, I think they're um, like in certain Asian cultures that still use the toilet. That's just a hole in the ground and they can squat they have amazing mobility into really old age and that's really awesome. And it's because certain things in their life are designed in a way that it's not just these comfortable chairs and cars and couches. They're like squatting down and they're getting on the floor and they wait for the bus and a squat and that's valuable. It's yeah. Yeah. It's so valuable. And like even pooping feels better when you're in a squat than it does when you're on the toilet. Now we have the squatty potty invention so that we can be in a squat position so that we can poop in a more natural position because our toilets are so high off the ground. Yeah. I mean, like, <laughs> Isn't it, that silly? it helps with the flow of, of the poop. Right. But like we designed the toilet to be high in the first place so that now, we didn't have to squat down because it was too thing. hard for our legs. Yeah. And now we have to bring the floor higher up to get us in the pooping position. <laughs> I know. It's pretty bonkers. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I feel when I have my own house like I'm not gonna have a conventional toilet oh just get a hole in the ground yeah something like it or even like just 
a toilet that is like ingrained into the floor. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. I'm gonna play around with you. You have to take your pants off all the way. That's fine. It's my house. <laughs> <laughs> um. Okay. If you could go back in time ten years ago and tell one message to younger Chels, what would you let her know? Hmm. One message about the future or anything. That's however you feel called to hmm. perceive the question. It'd probably be just to go outside more. <laughs> I know that's very basic. It's not this like profound life advice, but 10 years ago I was in college and while it was a great time of my life and I made a lot of great friends and lasting friendships, I feel like um, I didn't really get into like nature and hiking and exploring the creeks and yoga and slacklining until after that period of time, because I was just like living that college life and partying. Um, so I feel like it would be just like go outside, just be one with nature. And that's something that I feel like I want to carry through with me throughout my life. Um, cause it's easy for me at times just to be like after work, particularly, um, just to be like, I'm fine inside. I don't feel like doing anything. I just want to chill, make dinner and go to bed. Um, but on the days where I actually get outside, I feel so much better. It's like just the place where I feel the most peaceful and kind of reset. So I feel like that would be my advice to myself then, as well as forever, as I get busy and as I have a family and, you know, all these obligations come in life, like still go outside and play. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I feel living in the van is going to create that as a really strong non-negotiable moving mm -hmm. forward. Yeah, I look forward to that. For yourself. Because the van is not going to have the comforts of an apartment where you have your couch and your bed and the TV and a big kitchen to cook in. Um, most of the time we'll probably be, if we're in the van, the door is going to be open with nature literally at our doorstep. And so the access is right there. And it's going to be probably more enticing to be outside in the grass under the trees than inside the van most of the time. Mm -hmm. So I actually look forward to that, that it'll kind of like, push me out a little more. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be great because you're not going to be in the van forever yet. You're going to take lessons from the van and, and aspects of being out in nature that have become so integral to your life and way of being that you will bring it back into mm -hmm. wherever you end up. Yeah. Hope to bring many lessons with me. Yeah. Yeah. You just, you don't even know what you're in for. Yeah. Yeah, I exactly. know. It's going to be beautiful. And I'm excited. Yeah. I am excited about the unknown. There's magic there. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of juice there. Yeah. So if you could put a message onto a billboard um, for those here in Austin to see on Mopac Bridge when they're driving down south on a really busy day and the traffic is just moving at 
a snail's pace and they have no choice but to see this message, what would it say? Mm. Probably you're beautiful. Because mm. <laughs> when I'm in traffic, it's just monotonous and really annoying, but it feels really good when someone recognizes the beauty in you. So I feel like I would look up and it would make me smile. <laughs> yeah. So everyone... Or get outside. <laughs> <laughs> You're beautiful. No go get outside. <laughs> well, where can people find you, Chels? Um, you can find me traveling around in my van or on the socials. <laughs> uh, Facebook, Chelsea McLaughlin, or Instagram, C as in the ocean, S E A underscore. Chels, C H E L L S underscore. It's a play on seashells. Mm. And my name, Chelsea, just broken up and rearranged. Whoa, I like what you did there. Yeah. That's really cool. Because <laughs> I love the ocean and I grew up near the beach. So that's always felt like part of me as well water in the ocean. So yeah, C Chels. C Chels. <laughs> It was such a pleasure having you on this podcast. Um, yeah, yeah, I know for sure well. you're going to be on many more podcasts <laughs> in the future. Both you and Jacob, y'all just have the minds and the voices for it. And well, thank you. It's too. an honor. Yeah, yeah. It's been a privilege to be here. Thanks for having me on. You are welcome. <laughs> I love you, and I'm stoked to connect in Colorado and to continue just doing this dance life. With Hell yeah! Love you too, brother. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of The Line to Mastery with Chelsea McLaughlin. I know if you made it this far, then you got a lot out of the podcast. And there is some takeaway that you will be able to bring into the rest of your life. I know that just dropping into this podcast for me was so powerful and so insightful and just an amazing reflection of how important it is to be able to regulate our nervous system and take care of ourselves, to be able to honor when we're in our sympathetic nervous system and to bring ourselves back in the parasympathetic nervous system and to also go from the parasympathetic to the sympathetic because they're both valuable states. It's just so often... So often we're in this space of sympathetic nervous system of fight, flight, or freeze without ever taking a pause to turn that off. So much value in this podcast. Go ahead and share it with someone that you know will take something from it. And we will see you next week. Much love. Peace.